If you travel, you know how to really go off the grid. Like no cell service in your room, off the grid. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths, sound baths, and ice baths. Because when you set up your out-of-office, you mean it. Because when you're the escape artist, vacation is all about resting, meditating, drinking water, and minding your own businessing. The Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. Learn more at go.amex slash you know. Last summer, as I drove from Detroit to New Orleans, stopping at Green Book locations along the way, people shared reflections on their own experiences, stories from their parents, and insights pulled from collective knowledge. For generations, Black people have called this mother wit. It's practical, it's common sense, and it feeds your intuition just when you need it. In this episode, we've collected some of our favorite mother wit moments so that we may learn from the wisdom that's passed down from our elders. This is Driving the Green Book from Macmillan Podcasts, and I'm your host, Alvin Hall. Joining me on the road is producer Janae Woods-Weber. We're starting this episode with how travelers got ready for their road trips. Some things are ubiquitous. Packing fried chicken, biscuits, tea cakes, often in a shoebox, and sodas in a cooler. Making sure the car was serviced, gassed, and ready. And if you were traveling with children, bringing things to keep them entertained. Games, puzzles, and Bible lessons. Once on the road, black travelers had to be mindful of what was going on around them. Not just road conditions and changing weather, but also the white traveler's gaze. Sydney Cates in New Orleans recalled an experience driving to California years ago. When uh, CB radios were in use, uh, a couple of years back, they were very popular. The truckers used them all the time. And... uh, we were driving to Los Angeles. We had a brand new Cadillac with a CB radio in it. And uh, I got on a CB radio and I said, uh, I was driving a brown Cadillac. I was on the way to Los Angeles and uh, I wanted to know if you saw any trouble with the police up there, give me a call back. And I told him my, my call sign number. And my wife jumped on me. She said, don't use that radio, man, because Somebody, they're going to hear it. You've identified the car that you're driving in. They're going to give you some trouble. Well, uh, I didn't worry about that because I I was a a cop. I had a pistol in my car with me. I figured I could protect, protect us if we had to be protected. So we were driving along, and all of a sudden... uh, they interrupted the program again on the radio, and the guy said, uh, well, listen, when you get up to mile marker number so-and-so, uh, watch out because they got a smoky giving out green stamps up here. Now, this was verbiage for a policeman giving out tickets. After a little while, the guy said, well, listen, I'm up. He, he came on the radio again, and he said, I'm up, up at that mile marker now that you just told me about he said, but I don't see no smokies up here. All I see is a bunch of rubber-lipped porch monkeys in the school bus. Rubber-lipped porch monkeys? In the school bus, yeah. That, that meant black kids 
in a school bus being transported somewhere. And mm-hmm. the, 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 it was stupid, but it, mm-hmm. it happened. I have never heard that phrase in my entire life. Well, you heard it today. Astonishing. Astonishing. Clearly, the guy on the CB radio didn't realize he was talking to a black person. And Sidney's wife was concerned that giving away too much information about their nice Cadillac would make them vulnerable. While driving the Green Book, we heard stories like this one repeatedly, mostly from black people who drove Cadillacs, as Vanetta Shepard in Detroit confirms. We were always ready to buy a car now. My daddy drove Cadillacs. My daddy drove Cadillacs. Only. And I didn't know, and my uncle drove Cadillacs. I didn't know how they bought those Cadillacs until I was grown. My daddy, I, I went home, and daddy was going to see this man. He always went to visit this man at this car shop, car dealership. I said, daddy, why do you always hang around him? He said, I'm going to tell you something, baby. He said, I buy my car from him. I said, oh, why don't you go to the dealership? And He said, I can't. They won't sell it to me. They sold it to the white man who owned the car lot. And Daddy bought it from him. He could not go and buy a new car. Although Daddy, every two years, bought a new Cadillac. I hate Cadillacs this day. But in truth, any nice car could draw unwanted attention from police and civilians alike. It could be a Lincoln Continental, a Buick Deuce and a Quarter, or a Cadillac Eldorado. So we would, uh, most of the time, we would travel at night and sleep during the day. Because going through Texas and them little towns with a Lincoln, we were bound to get stopped. Almost every picture that we have on that route was us stopping paying a ticket. Because you used to get tickets (laughs) and you would pay them at a constable, which would be on the road somewhere. That was Eric Finley in Mobile, Alabama, recalling childhood trips to California. Not only did black people have to be careful of owning nice cars on the roads, they also had to be careful in their own cities. Hezekiah Jackson in Birmingham, Alabama, recalled the mother wit his father and his father's friends demonstrated in the pragmatic ways they avoided the dangers of the white gaze. And back then, the car was for special occasions. Because my, my daddy, he rode with other fellas to work. And he was like most men of his time. Daddy didn't believe in his wife having a job. So daddy worked two jobs. So he rode with his friends, and they rode in old raggedy trucks. They were afraid to carry their good cars around the white people on the job because we didn't have garages and stuff too much in the black neighborhood mm-hmm. back then. No. So the white people started selling car covers. Uh, you hid the car behind the house. Yeah, because if the people saw you had a good car, it was going to be a problem. It's amazing, right. isn't it? Sometimes light-skinned black travelers could deploy an unexpected tactic as Eric Finley in Mobile remembers. We take the vacation that year to California. Well, when we would stop to go into a hotel, my daddy and I would go in. Why? Because he looked white. And so, and I looked kind of white as Mexican. Mm-hmm. My mom, my brother, and my little sister <laughs> would stay in the car. Because so they were darker. They were darker. And so we could get the hotel room and stay. But you had to sneak them in then. Right. And... Um, so one hotel that we went to, the guy says, listen, I see the rest of everybody out there in the car. Y'all stay in the room. Don't come out. Okay? And that's how we got to California. But we were fortunate because of myself and my dad. Yes. And uh, a lot of people didn't have that luxury. 
And to be honest with you, I don't know what they did. I don't know if they slept in the car or they knew people. You know, now we did know some people along the way, like in Houston and some of the stops. But in most cases, we would sleep in a hotel with myself and my dad going in. And they didn't know because we were passing and, and they would let us stay. Sydney Cates of New Orleans, Louisiana, told a similar story that still makes me shake my head at the irony of the situation and their humor about it. My wife and I were coming back from, uh, from Los Angeles, and we stopped in Texas at a service station, and they had to use the restroom. And uh, they got out the car, and they were walking inside the service station, and they had a big brown dog laying across the, the entranceway to the service station. And my mother asked the guy who was, who was the service station manager, was the dog going to worry, worry them? And said, no, no, ma'am, you don't worry nobody but niggas. And uh, they went in, and they used the restroom, and they came back out. And I had to use the restroom. I was getting ready to leave, and my mother was laughing. She said, you better hurry up and, and, and use the restroom before that dog finds out you're black, <laughs> finds out you're a nigger. That, that, that was a comical situation, but yes. it, it, it actually happened, mm-hmm. you know? And, and you, you ran into those kinds of things on the road. Uh, Black travelers had to plan in advance not only their safe passage, but also how to deal with basic human needs on the roads. My mother's parents lived in um, New Roads, Louisiana, which is, you go down Highway 61, which is still there. And his parents, my father's parents, lived in West Point, Mississippi, over near the Alabama line. So our trips, so to speak, were primarily going to them. And one of the things that I remember vividly, especially on the trip to um, New Roads, which took about eight or ten hours, was that where would we stop for gas? Everything had colored and white restrooms. So my father found a service station in Vicksburg, which was about halfway, and essentially they didn't have separate restrooms. And it was white-owned. I know there were black folks that worked there, but because uh, it had no colored and white signs, Anybody use the same restroom. So essentially, that's what we did. That's Jesse Turner Jr., a banker in Memphis, Tennessee. And then our folks would try to keep us from drinking a lot. And I had two brothers drinking you know, water, liquid, so we wouldn't have to go. And at the time, the first, their first three children were all boys. So they bought us little urinals. <laughs> and, and, and halfway between, we'd have these little urinals. We'd be in the back seat, and you'd have the old car that had the, the hump in the back, mm-hmm. which would get kind of hot sometime. But you could worm your way. You were small, little mm-hmm. kids. You could stand on, sit on the seats, so kind of half stand, and use urinals. Now, mm-hmm. that didn't work when my sisters came, but they didn't come until 61 and 63. By the time they were able to travel, You had better, more options. Looking back over the trips his family took from his early years to his teens, Jesse realized there was a simple but powerful lesson about the value his family placed on their hard-earned money and how they spent it. Even after 
the public accommodation laws got passed, Civil Rights 64. We would travel. We used to make the same trip, particularly to my grandmother on West Point as teenagers. And we would stop. Now you're looking at 66, 7, 8. There was still, we would stop, and we got trained by our parents. First of all, ask, where's the restroom? Don't get the gas. You get out. I even do that almost now by instinct. I'm not using the card. Where's your restroom? They said they don't have any. We said we'll get our gas down the street because we knew nobody would stay there all day without a restroom, so they didn't want you using the restroom. So if they wouldn't let you use the restroom, I'm not spending my gas money there. You go to the next one. Can I use the restroom? Yes. And the restroom, and if you got there, it better not have a white and colored sign on it. Okay. Could you just turn around and walk out and drive away? Well, at that time, you know, teenagers, we probably just go to the white one. <laughs> and, I mean, you know, it's, it's hard to grow up with, um, in the environment that my father and these other guys and ladies were in and not have a certain amount of rebellious streak, you know, in you. When we come back from the break, we'll hear more about how a strong support network helped guide Black American travelers through encounters with the police on the road. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash Sirius XM. Experience a different tomorrow with Norwegian Cruise Line. Book today and get 50% off your cruise to Alaska, Europe, and beyond. Plus, everyone can enjoy their vacation with free unlimited open bar, free specialty dining, and more. Visit ncl.com, call your travel advisor, or 1-888-NCL-CRUISE. Offer ends soon. Norwegian Cruise Line. Ships registry the Bahamas and USA. Restrictions apply. The rest of my life gonna start today. There are countless stories of driving during Jim Crow and segregation with Mother Whit as a passenger, sitting silently and knowingly in the car. The strategies that families used on trips were surprisingly consistent. Basically, it was get on the road as early as possible, make no unnecessary stops, and arrive at your destination before sundown. For most people, this meant driving without stopping. Dr. Noelle Trent in Memphis, Tennessee, told us how her own family's travel habits from long ago are still being used today. My grandfather was a Mason, and so he would put his ring on whenever they traveled, and he would put his Mason seal on the back of the car. So every once in a while, my mother would say that she would remember. Um, the car would get pulled over occasionally, and my grandfather would just make sure the ring would be on the steering wheel and make sure that the police officer could see it. 
if he didn't see it on the seal on the back of the car, he would make sure that, or he would rub it to make sure that he would see it. And somehow they didn't seem to have any problems. Isn't that amazing? And I was like, I don't understand what was going on here, but it was this, it, it's this, there, there's this subtle etiquette that helped them negotiate these things. Um, and my, mo- my grandmother and my mother were just telling me the tactics that they used in terms of how they would negotiate traveling. Uh, they would leave everybody in my family, even to this day, if we're doing a road trip, I don't understand it. We get up at 5 a.m., <laughs> to this day. <laughs> to this day. I mean, especially if you're going north to south, you're, you're up at five. You know, you want to travel during the daylight. Nobody's traveling at night. I mean, you know, there's all these habits that are ingrained from that generation that was traveling during this time period. And even if, you know, especially when you don't know the route, yeah, you're. I remember very distinctly family road trips of it being mapped out, knowing where you're stopping. You know, we're stopping here, here, and here. And this is like 20 years after the Green Book's heyday, but this is what my parents were doing. And so these are all habits that are were taught generationally um, out of the need for safety. Fraternal organizations like the Masons had separate black and white divisions. Black Masons, along with African-American fraternities and sororities, were among the many organizations who were an essential part of the word-of-mouth network that people used when planning a trip and while on the road. This next story from William Williams, an architect who teaches at the University of Cincinnati, illustrates how members of Black fraternities, as well as sororities, were ready to provide support and safety to travelers, especially their fellow brothers and sisters, and their families. You just did not know where it was going to be a safe place to stop. Particularly if you had family, you have kids. If you're by yourself, maybe that's okay. Probably not. But when you have kids, you're like, you want to work out a plan and say, okay, we're going to stay at this hotel. I know in my family, my my father was an Omega, and he didn't use the Green Book so much, but he definitely used his fraternity brothers. When we were traveling through Alabama and everything else, he always had a list of fraternity brothers' names he could call. So if something happened, once our car broke down, you know, he called a fraternity brother, and they... They came out, got us, took us in, fed us. There's no questions. It's just like, that's just what you did. So, you know, those were just a different time. Things are better, not great, because I'm still not trying to drive through Vidor, Texas to this day. While that story was from William's own youth, he recalls a more recent situation when he stopped on the road with a group of young people he was chaperoning. We needed some gas, so we decided we were going to pull over and get some gas, and we talked to all the, you know, the kids are all hungry. They're like, hey, you know, we want to get something to eat. So we're thinking, hey, let's all go in. There's a diner here. We'll get our gas, get some food. You know, it just made sense. But when me and a couple of the other adults went in the place, there was a guy at the counter who kind of looked at us and was like, eh, I'm not sure if you're in the right place. And I remember asking him, it's like, well, do you think we should just, you know, maybe get our gas and go? And he's like, yeah, that would be best. And so we did. I mean, in some ways, we were kind of like, you know what? They don't want our money. We certainly don't want to give it to them. So 
you know, we just took off and left. But that's, you know, that really wasn't that late. Let's say that was the late 80s, maybe, early 90s. I mean, that wasn't that long ago. What Janae and I heard again and again is that certain encounters that people's parents experience repeat in different ways today. Carl Westmoreland in Cincinnati, Ohio, remembers an incident in his father's life. When I was younger, I would watch my father negotiate and use uh, a green book. He was a mason, and he had contacts. He was a CPA who was also a municipal uh, official, and then he was a well-placed Democratic official. So he he traveled a lot. He met with Hubert Humphrey in Minneapolis in the 50s, uh, early 50s. He went for a municipal finance officers meeting and, you know, he had his reservations and everything. And when he got there, uh, they said uh, he wasn't registered and he was the only black person there. So he was in this situation that was uh, potentially explosive. You know, he'd been driving all by himself. And, you know, and Mama was... My mother was a mess about daddy. She, you know, she loved him to death. So, you know, have you got this? Have you got that? And will you call me when you get there? And when he finally called, he said, Don, they didn't want to let me in. And the mayor of Minneapolis, his name is Hubert Humphrey. And he said, he said, well, he's my guest. And I'll take him home if necessary. But he's... He's going to be a part of the program. Then he, Humphrey called someone back here, called Lachlan, mm. uh, and asked them about my dad. They, they started talking about where he'd gone to school and how smart he was and all that. And Humphrey told the man he's going to be on the program. Decades later, Carl found himself in his dad's shoes having an experience that was so similar that it felt like he was reliving something that should have been history, like little had changed. I spoke at the Hotel Der Coronado in in, uh, San Diego for the National Trust for Historic Preservation, and my name was on the billboard. So they fly me in, and I walk up and I introduce myself as Carl B. Westmoreland, and uh, they said, well, we're not hiring today. Uh, when was that? 20 years ago. And, and I said, that's me. And I pointed to the billboard, and the guy got all flustered, and he starts scratching, and he says, well, I can't find your reservation. And I said, um, get Mr. Biddle. Well, Biddle was buried to a DuPont, and both Mr. Biddle and Ms. DuPont Biddle came to see what was going on. And Biddle says, man, if you don't get this straightened out immediately, this is the last time the National Trust will come to this facility. I don't know if you've ever seen the Hotel Del Coronado. I've been there. I've uh, seen that. Well, you know, it costs a fortune to stay in yes. the place. And I don't have that kind of money, but I was lucky enough. Uh, and that's the other thing, to be sheltered by someone who had influence and power And it's ridiculous that that's what it took. I've had the same experience at the Waldorf Astoria uh, in New York. 
And, and it, 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 it is something that I think we've made the mistake of not sharing with the young people I agree so that you. they uh, understand how tenuous our status is in, in this country. Carl's reaction is totally understandable to me. It's not just this incident. It's the accumulation of every time this has happened to him. But when his son, a new generation who doesn't have the same history, witnessed a similar encounter involving his father, he reacted very differently. Uh, on 275, uh, 285, going around Atlanta, my youngest son was going to Morehouse in the uh, 90s. And um, <laughs> I needed the gas from a shell station, and I needed to go to the bathroom. And the man didn't want to let me go to the bathroom, but he'd already put my gas in. We got into it, and here I am, uh, you know, in, in my 60s, uh, no, my late 50s. And I'm about to go to war with a guy in his late 20s, and I didn't care. In the 1990s? In the 1990s. Which Dude you... got in my face, and the only thing that kept me from taking him out was my son figured out what was going on. And my son is a wide receiver. And, you know, he presses 350, 360. And when he walked in... Uh, he suddenly had me behind him, and uh, he said, uh, you need to understand, he'll try you, but I'm going to knock you out. So you got some muscle behind you. For and so, so he says, Daddy, go to the bathroom. Having endured the road trip, which was certainly tiring for the vigilant adults, they were relieved to arrive at a hotel or tourist home listed in the Green Book or a relative's house where they were welcomed. As they settled in, some travelers, like my relatives, would say, the Lord brought us safely through. I've often thought that this was also a reference to the power of prayer and mother wit. If you look back on it, it was miraculous to watch our parents and, and the elders make adjustments and developing networks of contacts so that they could move around and so that they could balance the ugly we saw in route uh, with decent places to, places to sleep or warm places to eat and, and be received with courtesy and what I call sugar smacks. Uh, what are sugar smacks? <laughs> well, sugar smacks is the bosomy ladies that pull you up to give us some of that sugar, boy. <laughs> <laughs> My, you've gotten tall. Or, 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 I hear you're going to go to school. And of course you're going to do well. And so it, 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 there was this kind of anticipation of when we get there, I'm going to get some sweet potato pie um, and I'm going to get some homemade ice cream. In towns and cities across America, African-American entrepreneurs saw travelers coming into or passing through their cities looking for services that white establishments would not provide. And they knew that these travelers were willing to pay. One of the most successful entrepreneurs was A.G. Gaston in Birmingham, Alabama. Yes. Oh, he was a remarkable man. 
Absolutely. He built an empire. Absolutely. Here, Janae and I are talking to Denise Gilmore, Director of Cultural Preservation for the City of Birmingham, who oversees the restoration of the historic A.G. Gaston Motel. And the interesting thing is, he did this in the 50s. And think about that. A black man, a millionaire in the 50s, he was so ahead of his time. And he wasn't an educated man, was he? Well, let's say, um, my mother used to say, common sense goes a long, long way. I and agree. mother wit goes a long, long way. So yeah. a formal education, maybe not. But good old common sense, mother wit, and just that good, basic intellect, he had it all. Street smart and business savvy. Absolutely. How did he make his millions? So he made his millions in, uh, in industry. So it was the motel. He had an insurance company, a bank, funeral parlors. His motto was find a need and fill it. So when he looked throughout the black community and saw that so many things that we deserved and literally should have a right to services that the white community would not permit black people to have access to, he said, I'm, if I see a need, I'm going to fill it. And so he created funeral parlors. He created insurance plans. He had a bank, Penny Savings Bank. So a number of things that he did, and because, quite frankly, he was the only one doing this, that's how he created his millions. A.G. Gaston's story highlights how the entrepreneurial spirit of many Black people, coupled with deep mother wit, ended up not only providing safe, comfortable places for travelers, but also services and accommodations that were first class. It also shows how some people dreamed big and refused to let other people and their restrictive laws and racist practices dictate what they could or could not have. Whether through entrepreneurial efforts like Gaston's or other ways of using spur-of-the-moment problem-solving that comes out of motherwit, Black people have always found strategies to survive and create pathways to the promise of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness with dignity. That's all for this episode of Driving the Green Book. Join us next week as we head to Nashville to trace the legacy of Jim Crow and segregation through three generations of one family and pay tribute to the women entrepreneurs who've gone unrecognized throughout history. Special thanks to Sydney Cates, Eric Finley, Denise Gilmore, Hezekiah Jackson, Vanetta Shepard, Dr. Noel Trent, Jesse Turner Jr., Carl Westmoreland, and William Williams. Driving the Green Book is a production of Macmillan Podcasts. It is created, narrated, and produced by Alvin Hall and edited by Juleka Lantigua-Williams. Sound design and original theme song by Cedric Wilson at Lantigua-Williams & Co. Field production by Oluwakemi Aladesui. Janae Woods-Weber is the associate producer with additional production support by Jasmine Faustino, Michelle Margulis, Morgan Ratner, Emily Miller, and Becky Celestina. Kathy Doyle is the Macmillan Podcast Vice President. Subscribe to Driving the Green Book on Apple Podcasts. 
While you're listening, you can also explore the road trip locations behind the show using our custom Apple Maps guide. Find a link to this experience, curated music playlists, details about my upcoming book, and more at drivingthegreenbook.com. If you'd like to share your own stories about The Green Book with us, email us at greenbook at macmillan.com. We would love to hear from you. Safe travels. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.